While our committee has seen many witnesses, including many Republicans, testify fully and forthrightly, this has not been true of every witness. And we have received evidence of one particular practice that raises significant concern. Our committee commonly asks witnesses connected to Mr. Trump's administration or campaign whether they've been contacted by any of their former colleagues or anyone else who attempted to influence or impact their testimony. Without identifying any of the individuals involved, let me show you a couple of samples of answers we received to this question. First, here is how one witness described phone calls from people interested in that witness's testimony. Quote, what they said to me is as long as I continue to be a team player, they know I'm on the right team. I'm doing the right thing. I'm protecting who I need to protect. You know I'll continue to stay in good graces in Trump world. And they have reminded me a couple of times that Trump does read transcripts. And just keep that in mind as I proceed through my interviews with the committee. Here's another sample in a different context. This is a call received by one of our witnesses. Quote, a person let me know you have your deposition tomorrow. He wants me to let you know he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. I think most Americans know that attempting to influence witnesses to testify untruthfully presents very serious concerns. We will be discussing these issues as a committee, carefully considering our next steps. Season 2, Episode 20, Witness Tampering. Welcome to Capitol Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The introduction to this episode was provided by House Select Committee to Investigate the January 6th Attack Vice Chair Liz Cheney, describing the events that probably led the committee to accelerate the hearing timetable. I'm just going to jump into it this time, uh, as there is a lot of material to cover, uh, both around this sudden rescheduling of the hearing and the actual content of the hearing itself. But before I get to that, uh, one other important news item. As I mentioned in the last episode, former Senate Sergeant-at-Arms Michael Stanger was found dead at his home on Monday, June 27. Reports on Stanger's death in his home at the age of 71 have been varied. Fox News claimed Stanger had been suffering from cancer. The AP reported his death as being from natural causes. And NBC News reported the death as, quote, not suspicious. Of course, there's really no definitive official information available on Stinger's death at this time. So that's all we really know. Nothing official so far, but sources are telling journalists that it's not suspicious. Whatever the circumstances, this really does uh, emphasize the time-sensitive nature of the January 6th cases. Uh, Stinger, who was, you know, one of the officials, you know, both Stinger, um, well, there's a lot of people that have a lot to answer to. You know, both the House and the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms uh, could have done a lot better getting, uh, in, you know, requiring or asking for the National Guard to help. And Stinger would have been a potentially important witness 
In this regard, of course, he can offer no further testimony than what he has given to date, because sadly he is dead at 71. Condolences to his family. Now, the first thing to note about this hearing, which was the star witness hearing for Cassidy Hutchinson, was the, the surprise character, which was made public early in the morning on Monday, June 27th. Members of the committee who had been on break were recalled to Washington for the hearing, which took place at 1 p.m. and lasted an hour and 43 minutes. The presiding was presided over, as always, by Chairman Benny Thompson and Vice Chair Liz Cheney, with Cheney also taking the lead role in questioning the witness. The sole witness testifying live, who of course I've mentioned in this podcast before and earlier just now, was Cassidy Hutchinson, the former senior aide to the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. For months, the committee had been floating the fact that they had contacted various members of staff and received valuable testimony from them as a kind of a stick, I believe, to get uncooperative witnesses to comply. And Hutchinson's name had been out there for quite some time as well. The committee formally issued her a subpoena on November 9th, 2021. As it turns out, she may not have actually received the service of the subpoena until January. And she also made news in April when the committee cited her testimony in a case brought against Mark Beddoes. And she's appeared frequently uh, on video in the public hearings from multiple depositions for today. And yet the, the hearing was reported on as a surprise hearing with a surprise witness. Now, when it was announced that it was Hutchinson, uh, I don't think a lot of people were surprised. Maybe people haven't been paying attention. Um, I certainly wasn't. Hutchinson has already provided, had already provided at that point, the committee with some absolutely great evidence, bombshell testimony, and had given every appearance of cooperating fully. Now, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but I had expected that she would be the star witness in the, whatever hearing they were going to have on what happened in the White House on January 6th, which was supposed to be the topic of the seventh hearing in the final round of, you know, this final hearing of the final round of hearings. Uh, sorry, the first round of hearings. Anyway, um, she wasn't really a surprise, despite the fact that the media did kind of portray it as that. You know, this was certainly kind of a, the pop quiz equivalent of, of a hearing, nonetheless. But, you know, the topic, uh, the themes of her testimony wasn't really a surprise either. Um, you know, I'm not talking about the substance of her testimony, just the fact that she was testifying uh, as to what happened, mainly on January 6th. Now, after all, again, you know, why is this not surprising? She's given us bombshells in her earlier testimony, in her earlier video testimony. Uh, she was the witness, for example, who provided the detail that Mark Meadows had been burning documents in his office fireplace. And in the last hearing, the one prior to this one, uh, she was the witness who had uh, testified to the fact that Brooks, Gates, Biggs, Perry, Gomer, Jordan, and possibly Green had all requested pardons from Trump as he was on the way out of the administration. So that was one of the biggest pieces of news to emerge from the fifth hearing held on June 23rd. 
So again, Hutchinson self-evidently was already really pretty cooperative. So it, it is a, a little odd that they, they, you know, this was framed in this way as you know about being surprised witnesses bringing new evidence. Now it is an interesting question: how much of this was new, right? So she had been cooperating from the beginning. The fullness of the cooperation, however, perhaps, you know, it wasn't what it could have been. Maybe even perhaps what she wanted it to be. It was reported on June 9th that Hutchinson had replaced her, replaced her attorney, one Stefan Positano, uh, who was an attorney paid for by Trump, and fire, uh, hired Judy, Judy Hunt. Now, Positano had previously worked as deputy counsel to the president, supposedly working uh, on all things on the, the theme of ethics. So he took that job in 2017. Now, being Trump's ethics lawyer is really like being the Ayatollah's minister of pork sausage. You know, it's not something that you would ordinarily, you don't ordinarily associate the name Trump with ethics any more than you associate uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran with, with pork sausage. Nonetheless, um, you know, this was the guy who was uh, representing and perhaps impeding to some extent Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. So apparently retaining new counsel freed Hutchinson up to speak more freely to the committee. But again, the, the replacement took place on June 9th. Now, th there have been a whole series, obviously, of hearings since then, um, and you, you have no idea what happened behind closed doors. Could have been that she had wanted to replace him all along, and they, they advised her to wait uh, so as to not tip their hand as to what kind of testimony that she would be offering. A lot of people frame this as, oh, well, she suddenly came forward with all this new... I don't think so, right? I don't think that she just suddenly came forward I think that she probably early on uh, made clear her intent to the committee that she wanted to cooperate fully, but was impeded by the fact that she did not have an attorney who was independently representing her, but one who effectively served two masters, both her, uh, well, really, Donald Trump, and then her. So the new thing that was happening, again, really wasn't anything that Hutchinson testified to. To my mind, the new thing, and the reason why they probably need to accelerate the timetable, was what I led the show with, right? It was threats against Hutchinson herself. At the very end of the hearing, Liz Cheney dropped the bombshell that I use as the introduction. They wanted to get Miss Hutchinson's testimony down on the record because witnesses were receiving threats. And subsequent reporting at The Guardian reported that, quote, Two sources familiar with the matter had indicated that both of the threats that were featured in the hearing were actually directed at Hutchinson, and that one of those threats came from an associate of Mark Meadows himself. So there you go. Now, I don't, we don't know how much is left for hearing seven. Again, that was the hearing that was supposed to be all about what Trump was doing in the White House during the attack on the Capitol, a period which we still know remarkably little about. Um, so we don't know what it does to that hearing, whether that hearing is still on. In Cheney's seven-step plan, uh, 
it's, it's no longer recognizable, right? There's just been too many changes to the schedule. And I would sound like a madman if I tried to explain them all. How the second hearing became the fifth hearing. And how the sixth and seventh hearings were rescheduled for after the summer break. And then suddenly what would have been the seventh hearing was inserted into the break. And now the seventh hearing is now the sixth hearing. And the sixth hearing is now the seventh hearing. So there was this neat chronological order in the original scheme. That's long gone. Um, so it's been reported that the, the next hearing is going to take place on July 12th, which is the first day that the House is in schedule in session after the break. So again, we don't really know, you know, I don't think it was that Cassidy Hutchinson hadn't been cooperating and then suddenly was. I think that she had been cooperating, raised this issue with the committee regarding her attorney, took time, find new, uh, new counsel, or intentionally delayed that, and then had her third deposition with the committee. So it wasn't just theater, in other words. Uh, you know, the new thing here is that there is a credible threat of witness tampering. And, you know, this wasn't, as I originally thought, maybe it's like, maybe this is just trying to gin up public interest. I don't think so, right? This is real concern over the safety and security of a witness, and indeed someone who is the star witness so far, right? I know I developed this typology in one of the earlier ones, uh, episodes where I talked about, well, people who are self-serving, you're Bill Bars, you got people who are just totally not going to testify at all, you're Mark Meadowses, you're Steve Bannons, the people who are going to fight the subpoenas, you got people who are going to self-set, you know, or are going to testify, but perhaps you know, are somewhere in the middle, right? They're in between righteous indignation and, you know, uh, utterly self-serving testimony. I truly think that Hutchinson, along with some of the, uh, some of the attorneys, um, you know, Hirschman, for example, you might put in this category, uh, although, again, I think Hutchinson is, is the clear standout to be the, the John Dean character. I know I've been asking that all along. Who's John Dean? Who's going to be the John Dean this time around? Maybe it's Cassidy Hutchinson. I mean, her testimony, as we will see, was just that significant. So, and yet, to my mind, the, the, the biggest bombshell isn't just the things that she was testifying to, but just these threats in and of themselves, made by persons who are known to the committee. Now, this not something that happened in January of last year, right? That is an ongoing effort at obstruction of Congress and possibly obstruction of justice. So that is a crime that is actionable by the Department of Justice. So you have figures who are close to Trump out there committing the kinds of felonies that can be punished by up to, punished by up to 20 years. And this is very significant because of the special seriousness with which courts treat the charges of witness tampering. Interestingly, in the federal system, this crime is charged under the same section of the U.S. Code that we are now all familiar with from the obstruction of an official proceeding charges, right? Title 18, Section 1512. One of the ways that courts have dealt with these kinds of charges is to subject defendants to pretrial detention, right? You get accused of, weapon, of witness tampering, you go to pretrial detention. So, you know, if someone's charged, they might be a good candidate for pretrial detention, right? The Justice Department, I, I should think should act quickly, 
Um, you know, this may be something, for all we know, that the committee told them about some time ago. Um, although, again, I do think it's, it's more likely that it was the threat that was more recent. And oddly enough, of course, there has been crickets about this from the Trumpists. Absolutely nothing. Um, there's been a debate about the lunge, which we will get to in a moment, um, but absolutely nothing about the mob-like threats committed both by text and by phone call, and the, the fact that there's an electronic record of the identity of the senders. Trump, of course, has attacked Hutchinson, contradicting himself in the process. He simultaneously claims he doesn't know anything about her, but he's apparently familiar enough with her to denounce her as not good. Now, of course, as we know, the hearings are more popular than some folks in the media would like to let on. Uh, 13 million people uh, reportedly watched the surprise hearing. And I'm sure more than that, now that people have watched, you know, had a chance to watch it online. That is quite good for daytime television, particularly considering that it was a surprise hearing, and only 20 million people watched the first primetime hearing. So it looks like the numbers for the final hearing uh, might even exceed the first one and the final. The, the final in this set of hearings. We still don't know exactly how many hearings there will be. Now, Hugo Lowell reported, I think it was yesterday, that, um, again, the, the, the seventh hearing, which would have been the, the, the same topic as the sixth hearing, i.e. assembling the mob, Donald Trump assembles the mob, um, is going to be on July 12th. But he tweeted out something a little bit confusing, saying, well, it's confirmed that it's mainly about the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and other gangs. That's actually not quite accurate, and I, I rely on him quite a bit. You've probably seen his links in my show notes uh, quite a bit. But someone as prolific as he is can be forgiven uh, for that. He actually cited um, Adam Schiff, whose appearance on Face Nation, Nation on CBS was basically where the committee is, you know, reporting this news. So here's what Schiff actually had to say with regard to the content of this seventh hearing. And yes, it's about Trump assembling the mob, but not necessarily focusing exclusively on paramilitary gangs, rather the, the whole broader task of assembling the mob. She testified she heard conversations inside the White House about this far-right group and another one called the Oath Keepers. Is there corroborating evidence to show that there was communication between those militias in the White House? I don't want to get uh, too far ahead of what we intend to present in our next hearings, but our very next hearing will be focused on the efforts to assemble that mob on the mall, uh, who was participating, who was financing it, how it was organized, including the participation of these white nationalist groups like the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, uh, and others. Um, and so we'll be presenting uh, information we have. Uh, we haven't answered all the questions that we have. Uh, we continue our investigation into precisely the issue you're describing. So again, I love Lowell's work, um, but this is consistent with. I actually had to check it. I'm like, wait a minute, if he's reporting this, maybe they're adding another hearing just on the paramilitary gangs before we get to my much long-awaited hearing 
on Trump assembling the mob. In fact, no. No, this is the one that was on the schedule. Well, not on the schedule. Literally, right? But the one that was to be expected as the sixth hearing, Trump assembles the mob. Now the seventh hearing. And key points, not just about the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, right? Part of the overall strategy was mobilizing these normies. We go back to all the way, I think it was episode two, right? Or three, monkey see, monkey do. Getting, modeling the violence, getting the normies to participate in the violence. And, of course, you know my pet theory, right? Uh, a lot of, selecting a lot of violent men, particularly vulnerable men, men in group housing, people with mental, mental health issues, getting them to Washington. And so I am excited to hear Schiff say, you know, not just people participating, but people financing. Because we know that there were people taking donations, right? The North Tex Texas Patriot Boys, Denny and Hazard, they solicited donations. They got a big donation, and that was ultimately what enabled them to go. We don't know how many of these individuals received cash from either campaigns or different groups that took them to D.C. We know that Doug Mastriano and others, uh, you know, MAGA... Drag the interstate, right? You know, bikers for Trump. All these groups took buses. So I expect that. That is really bombshell evidence. And so that is why I am anxiously awaiting this hearing just eight days from now. So I expect that the committee is probably going to try to find a way uh, in the next eight days to get people to really watch that one. No word on whether or not this one's in prime time, but if you look at the original schedule, the first hearing and the last hearing were always supposed to be in prime time. So I suspect that this one will be. And um, again, I think it's fortuitous that this will be the final one in this round, at least. People were really surprised at how much there there was in the Hutchinson hearing. And I yet... I think they're going to be even more surprised, particularly people who have not been paying close attention, on how learning how Trump assembled the mob, uh, whichever hearing you know ultimately winds up you know, the number. Okay, it's, it's going to be number seven, but the very next hearing, and we don't know how many there there will be beyond that. But to my mind, right now the Hutchinson hearing probably the best one to date. I expect that the next one will be even better. In fact, you know, I think he could probably do two hearings on this topic. There have been hundreds of individuals charged. Many of these have given interviews. And apparently, you know, some of them might feel some regrets. Thompson, in his interview to the introduction to the sixth hearing, said, quote, In the weeks ahead, the committee will hold additional hearings about how Donald Trump summoned a mob of his supporters to Washington, spurred them on to to march on the Capitol and failed to take meaningful action to quell the violence as it was unfolding on January 6th. So I, I take that plural uh, to perhaps be significant. Um, they apparently haven't used up all the testimony on what Trump did in the White House in the surprise Hutchinson hearing. But, you know, I really think you could do multiple hearings just on the attack itself. Now, They've done a good job so far showing that the hearings, you know, the, the attack itself wasn't just a mere riot and that the attack itself is best understood 
in the context of the effort to manufacture fake election disinformation, the fake elector scam, and all the other elements in what Cheney has described as a seven-step plan. But to bring it home, we're going to have to return to where the story began for most people, and that's on January 6th itself. I would love to see some tearful denunciations of Trump and Trumpism by the attackers, but I think the really explosive stuff are going to come from the details on the planning, the coordination of mob, the mob, the kinds of details that we saw were hinted at in the first hearing on the Proud Boys, and also links between Trump, the Republican Party, and the attackers. So, you know, I don't think it's an accident that you have um, people like Freddie Klein, right, a Trump administration official in the mob. I don't think that it's an accident that you have people like Zeker Bozell, literal Republican Party royalty, moving the cameras in the Senate chamber, making phone calls to we don't know who. That's not an accident. This is, you know, the, all the evidence suggests that this is a pretty big conspiracy. And there were people who are surprisingly, like, relatively normal Republicans. I mean, you know, it's like an Elise Stefanik story, right? She starts out, you know, relatively moderate, winds up full maggot, you know. Um, the Bozells have always been sort of on the, the rightward edge of the Republican Party. You know, nonetheless, if you told me 30 years ago that that would have been a thing that happened, I wouldn't have believed it, right? Um, so, again, be sure to watch or to listen to this live. Encourage your friends and family to do the same, because I think that, that hearing, I know I'm, I'm here to talk about the Hutchinson hearing, but that hearing in particular is going to be full of new stuff. As much as I enjoyed the stuff about the, the attempted firing of um, Jeff Rosen, the attempt to replace him with Jeff Clark, that wasn't particularly new. The Hutchinson hearing material, awful lot of new stuff. This next one, awful lot of new stuff as well, I believe. So there's so much material to cover in the Hutchinson hearing, the sixth hearing, that I think the only sensible way to proceed is to go chronologically, reading and interpreting the hearing itself as a text. Reading and rereading carefully is the way that makes the most sense for me to look at these, because there are details that stick out in memory, but there are others that don't. And yet they may be every bit as important as the parts that the media has really focused on, such as, for example, the lunging incident. But compared to the hearing covering the attempted firing of Rosen, again, there are so many details from Hutchinson's testimony that I want to try to hit them all. And I, my apologies if I actually miss any of it. So right off the bat, Chairman Thompson tells us what it's all about. Quote, it hasn't always been easy to get that information because the same people who drove the former president's pressure campaign to overturn the election are now trying to cover up the truth about January 6th. End quote. This is a comment that he makes before there's been any mention of witness tampering and threats. But note that the implication that Thompson makes here. This isn't just about things that happened over a year ago. It's also about the ongoing cover-up and attempt to obstruct Congress and justice that's still underway. And the tip line is open, right? I don't know how useful the tip line is uh, with regard to the public, but they want people 
within the administration, this is our last chance, right? Come forward or, you know, face the consequences. And then Thompson hands it over to Cheney, the vice chair. So Cheney begins by establishing some of Hutchinson's credentials as a Republican and as an important member of the West Wing staff. She tries to shoehorn this surprise session into her overall scheme, saying, quote, up until now, our hearings have been organized to address specific elements of President Trump's plan to overturn the 2020 election. Today, we are departing somewhat from that model because Ms. Hutchinson's testimony touches on several important and cross-cutting topics, topics that are relevant to each of our future hearings. End quote. And again, I thought at first, well, maybe they've just accelerated, they've decided to reorder it. I really, at this now, having thought about it and read and reread, and this really was an ad hoc thing. They had the video testimony queued up. That was going to be ready for the seventh hearing, but they decided, again, to go ahead because of the witness tampering efforts. So it's pretty clear that, that Cheney's also just priming the pump. She's going to rely on Hutchinson's testimony further for more video hearing evidence in later hearings. So I think they did a good job, I mean, by, by her own terms, shoehorning this in, even though, you know, again, we're, we've gone outside the chronology. I, I know, like, if you look at this podcast, for example, first thing I did, first episode, goals of the podcast, right? Cheney did something similar here, and it's probably, you know, equally successful, right? You wind up jumping around, and maybe you don't necessarily hit all the themes. I think I have by this point. Um, but, you know, certainly with regard to this scheme, doing it in order, hasn't managed to do it. Nonetheless, I don't think that's going to matter for the average viewer or listener. Also, apologies. Apparently there's a bird outside my window. I don't know if you can hear it. Um, anyway, in the, the fourth paragraph of her introduction of Hutchinson, Cheney says this, quote, Ms. Hutchinson spoke daily with members of Congress, with high-ranking officials in the administration, with senior White House staff, including Mr. Meadows, with White House counsel lawyers, and with Mr. Tony Ornato, who served as the White House Deputy Chief of Staff. Now, this is one of the reasons why it's useful to, like, reread, right? Because I thought that, um, basically, we, we led, we hooked... Um, right into some other people. The first person that uh, Cheney is drawing our attention to, this is significant, is Anthony Ornato. So the question is, why single out the Deputy Chief of Staff here? Cheney wants us early on to know that Anthony Ornato is significant. So, duly noted, right? Ornato's name appears 26 times in the record here. So, during her presentation, again, this is the kind of thing that you can miss in the video testimony, but that's why I'm posting the transcripts for you from NPR to also read, um, because it's useful, right? You know, these things don't stick in your memory, but it's better when you access it as a text. The three standout themes that Cheney identifies for Hutchinson's testimony are these. First, her first-hand observations of President Trump's conduct on January 6th. Second, 
new information regarding the actions and statements of Mr. Trump's senior advisors on January 6th, including his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and his White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and third, to begin to examine new evidence bearing on what President Trump and members of the White House staff knew about the prospect for violence on January 6th, even before that violence began. So, in other words, the testimony is aimed at demonstrating that Trump and his circle were aware of the plan for violence, a plan that the committee will later demonstrate that they helped to plan. So, this attacks one of the core elements of Trump's legal strategy, the element of plausible deniability. It's hard to demonstrate plausible deniability if you have knowledge of something that is supposedly a big surprise to you. So Trump, Trump, sorry, Thompson, then moves on, you know, gets the gavel back, well, not the gavel back, but uh, Cheney speaks for a little while, then Thompson speaks, and he moves on to further establish Hutchinson's credentials, asking about her experience prior to working in the White House, where her office was located in the West Wing, and what a typical day working for Mark Meadows was like. It was, I thought, particularly significant the fact that Hutchinson's office was located just a five or ten second walk to the Oval Office. So Hutchinson was in a position to not merely observe the comings and goings of people, but oftentimes to actually hear what people were saying. I mean, you know, that's just, I mean, just a, a few meters away, you can probably hear what people are saying. As she said in her testimony, it's smaller than it looks. So now I move back to Cheney, uh, who has the floor for pretty much the, the most of the rest of the hearing, although, um, you know, a couple times toward the end, she hands off again with Thompson. So Cheney asks Hutchinson about a meeting that took place on the evening of January 2nd between Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows. Hutchinson describes her short conversation with Giuliani thusly, quote, as Mr. Giuliani and I were talking, were walking to his vehicles that evening, he looked at me and said something to the effect of, Cass, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. I remember looking at him saying, Rudy, could you explain what's happening on the 6th? He responded to something to the effect of, we're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. He's... He's going to be with the members. He's going to be with the senators. Talk to the chief about it. Talk to the chief about it. He knows about it. End quote. Kind of significant here, I thought, uh, that Rudy apparently uh, calls Cassidy Cass, right? So they made a point of mentioning the fact that she has a nickname. It's Cass. Not that weird. But Rudy Giuliani calls her by her nickname. And again, According to Giuliani, Mark Meadows at this point on January 2nd knows all about it. Knows all about the plans to go to the Capitol and look powerful on January 6th. So those are words that seem rather ominous, right? Given what would happen just four days later. Hutchinson then tells Meadows about the conversation that she had had with Giuliani, saying, quote, I just had an interesting conversation with Rudy, Mark. It sounds like we're going to the Capitol. According to Hutchinson, quote, 
He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, There's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. So, that's the very third, first thing, right? Giuliani knows about the plans for January 6th on January 2nd, and so does Mark Meadows. According to Hutchinson, this made her feel scared and nervous. Now, not nervous enough for her to go to the press, mind you, uh, and I know a lot of people are, are upset about, she's not a hero, it's like, yes, okay, you're right. Maybe she could have gone to the press. Um, but nonetheless, this made her scared and nervous. And I expect, as we'll see in, in the sequencing of things, you know, maybe Mark Meadows knew some things. I expect that Giuliani was involved very early on with the plan for January 6th. At some point, they bring in Meadows. Meadows begins to know about the plans to go to the Capitol and for Trump to be there. And so that is, I, I believe, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in Hutchinson's testimony, one of the bombshells. I had always left it open in my mind. Did Trump really think that the Secret Service was going to allow him to actually physically go to the Capitol all along? I was always kind of hanky on that point. Um, you know, presidents don't appear in these massive mobs of people, any number of whom could have weapons, as we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but apparently, you know, that was the real plan. The real plan included Trump going to the Capitol physically, in person. Um, again, you know, there was always that bit about, well, yes, they asked Alex Jones to step in and sub for him. Um, but apparently, on the day, literally on the day, Trump thought that he would be going to the Capitol himself. It wouldn't be Alex Jones that he could just, by sheer force of will and tiny hands, uh, force his way to the Capitol no matter what the Secret Service wanted to do. So that testimony is used to establish the foreknowledge of the, the plan for the January 6th on the part of Meadows and Giuliani. Cheney then pivots to a conversation that Hutchinson had with Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe in December of 2020. So we're jumping around a little bit here chronologically, and this is one that I think is kind of odd. Um, I'm not sure what the point of it is, whether they're seeking to get some testimony from John Ratcliffe. Um, again, in kind of the, the, the two big points that the committee has, uh, apart from simply getting this information out to the public, I believe, is to highlight the witness tampering, to let the DOJ and everyone know that there's ongoing crimes by on the part of the former Trump administration and people around it, but also to uh, focus on the fact that some members or some of the Trump administration, some people in Trump's circle, have not testified fully truthfully. And so Ratcliffe's a little bit different from Ornato because he doesn't actually appear in this document or in Hutchinson's testimony at all. Unlike Mr. Ornato, Deputy Chief of Staff, wouldn't she wouldn't have like a lot of occasions to necessarily interact with Anthony Ornato, or at least not as many. I mean, obviously, you know, Mark Meadows is her boss. She's working closely with him all day. Now, this is a little bit inside baseball, but I would like to take a moment to focus on why Radcliffe matters. 
Uh, why do we even have a director of national intelligence? Well, this is a position that, when I was an undergrad, didn't even exist. Um, it was a position that was created as a result of the 9-11 Commission. Apparently, the 9-11 Commission was dissatisfied with the work product of the CIA, who had formerly been in charge of all foreign intelligence. And so the solution was kind of a pretty typical D.C. solution. They added another position uh, with regard to, you know, okay, reports directly to the president, and it's going to collate not just information from the CIA, but really all the many intelligence-gathering sources, particularly foreign intelligence. And so it would basically act as uh, a central agent coordinating all the intelligence collection and giving it to the president. Supposedly, this is going to streamline things and make it harder to overlook uh, possible danger to the country. So the whole point was to avoid uh, another potential 9-11. Now, of course, at the time, no one wanted to really talk about how the whole involvement of the Saudis might have been found out earlier uh, if we weren't so busy looking for aluminum tubes and whatnot in Iraq. But so, I mean, the best they could do is to create this position. You know, let's, let's, let's focus on, the, quote, intelligence failures, right? Not the fact that, you know, we, there was the Bin Laden memo. There was, you know, Bin Laden determined to attack in the U.S., uh, there's this tacit agreement, you know, that we don't in meddle in internal Saudi affairs. We don't really look at what is happening with regard to church and state between the crown and the various figures in the Saudi religious establishment. We, we don't really look at that. We didn't then, don't know what we're doing now. In any event, whole point was to, to just create this position and... Hope for the best, right? You know, thanks to this new position and structure, our nation would be forewarned of any future attacks. Right. Okay. So, basically, we saw on January 6th that the DNI is a sad, tragic joke. And, of course, uh, the occupant, Ratcliffe, said, well, this is, you know, not my fault. I coordinate foreign intelligence. But the intelligence community is not that huge. If there's all this documentary evidence... Uh, and all these warnings, you know, talking about an attack on the U.S. Capitol, one would think that the DNI might get wind of some of it, right? So, you know, we never talk about the fact that after 9-11, particularly after 2004, 2005, um, the intelligence establishment was given vast new powers, huge changes, such as the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And a lot of this has proved to be, in my opinion, a colossal waste of time and energy, precisely because the worst attacks seem to come from people the intelligence and the security industrial complex is completely disinterested in looking at, right? Such as our supposed allies in Saudi Arabia or far-right terrorist paramilitary gangs, right? There's an analogy to be made. There's a case to be made here, you know? We were interested in Iraq, so we were looking at Iraq. We weren't looking at Saudi Arabia we weren't looking at Wahhabism or Bin Laden or Al-Qaeda. We were looking because we really wanted to invade Iraq at the time, right? Trump administration looking at Antifa, looking at BLM. Not focused on the right-wing paramilitary gangs because, of course, in this instance at least, this is beyond 9-11. I mean, they were actually coordinating with uh, the right-wing paramilitary gangs. Uh, I, I know there's Lee Hop and Mihop. I, I don't necessarily buy 
any of that. But there's certainly a thing, an element of willful ignorance with regard to what was happening with bin Laden, I'll put it that way, uh, and 9-11 and Al-Qaeda. And here, of course, it's, it's even worse because I mean, there's actual coordination. So John Ratcliffe is the official who's charged with making sure that we would never see anything like, let's say, an attack on Congress. My own take on this is that Ratcliffe is himself basically an empty suit Trumpist who got brought in during the first impeachment and he represented uh, the 4th District of Texas in the House, but he's just way in over his head, in no way suited to be the actual DNI. So, I, again, I, I, that's maybe a little bit personal, uh, but, you know, I, I, I just really think that if you look at the evidence, you know, to, to say that you, you know, well, I do foreign intelligence, I, it, that is really, that's, that's kind of weak sauce. I mean, you can just go down the timeline. So October 1st, there's Department of Home, Homeland Security. Uh, there's uh, an intelligence product assessing ideologically motivated and lone offenders uh, looking uh, to be involved with the election. October 30th, there's another memo from DHS. November 9th, there's an FBI analyst email who sends an email to others in the FBI warning of post-election violence by the far right. You know, perhaps Ratcliffe wouldn't have seen that. December 4th, New Jersey State Police Regional Operations and Intelligence Center uh, sends information regarding uh, increased danger for politicians November, December 11th, House members announced plans to challenge the electoral vote and Capitol Police request security assignment for the Capitol. And again, you would think that perhaps maybe the DNI would, would look into things like that, right? December 14th, there are intelligence agencies sharing open source data. So that's more to do with the Capitol Police, uh, the DC, the MPD. Nonetheless, again, there's a major, you know, intelligence chatter regarding the Capitol you would think the DNI might be interested in some of that, right? Uh, December 15th, there's the SITE, S-I-T-E, Intelligence Report uh, that is titled, Far-Right Forum Urges Proud Boys to Overpower and Rush Police During D.C. Protests. So, again, a lot, there's there's tips to the FBI, um, there's park police, etc., and forth, so forth. Uh, December 21st, there's an Israeli analyst warning. Again, this is at the intersection of our relationship. You know, this is, is that domestic intelligence? Will we get something coming in from a foreign intelligence service? So, you know, and just, you go down the list. And the, 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 the plausible deniability is pretty weak for Radcliffe. So I don't know if he has testified to something that the committee would not like to bring into sharper relief. But it is interesting. I know we're, we're focused on Ornato. We're focused on the threats. But it's significant to my mind that Ratcliffe comes up in this context. So to cue up uh, the testimony regarding Ratcliffe, um, I'll have Liz Cheney introduce it. Uh, but basically this is from one of Hutchinson's recorded interviews. Uh, but to begin and to frame the discussion, I want to uh, talk about a conversation that you had, Mr. John Ratcliffe, 
the director of national intelligence, and uh, you had this conversation in December of 2020. Mr. Ratcliffe was nominated by President Trump uh, to oversee U.S. intelligence, uh, our U.S. intelligence community. Uh, and before his appointment, Mr. Ratcliffe was a Republican member of Congress. As you will see on this clip, Director Ratcliffe's comments in December of 2020 were prescient. My understanding was Mr. Rat Director Ratcliffe didn't want much to do with the post-election period. Director Ratcliffe felt that it wasn't something that the White House should be pursuing. It felt it was dangerous for the president's legacy. He had expressed to me that he was concerned that it could spiral out of control and potentially be dangerous, either for our democracy or the way that things were going for the six. So again, Ratcliffe gets dropped later on, right? They don't mention him uh, any further in the hearings. But what Hutchinson has done here has to say how things, he could have potential with regard to how things are going on the 6th. So what this demonstrates is that John Ratcliffe had knowledge in December, on December 20th, that there was potentially something problematic regarding national security on January 6th. So it's hard for us to know, right? Do they want to have some words with John Ratcliffe? Uh, do they believe that he has not testified fully about everything they know? Or are they uh, trying to draw, you know, who knows, right? Uh, what the purpose of this is. But I know we're, you know, while we've, a lot of this is going to focus on Ornato, it's interesting that they bring him up so early in this connection, right? Because, you know, again, this is all about the tying the overall effort into the attack on January 6th, right? Hutchinson talks about how Ratcliffe doesn't want them to, quote, fight the results of the election, finding missing ballots, pressuring, filing lawsuits in certain states where they didn't seem to be significant evidence, and reaching out to state legislatures in that. So pretty much the way that the White House is handling the post-election period, here he felt that there could be dangerous repercussions in terms of the precedent set for elections, for democracy, for the six. You know, he was hoping that we would concede, end quote. So if you look at Hutchinson's testimony, uh, at least in late December, John Ratcliffe seems to be on Team Normal. Now, in an interesting coincidence that... I don't know has any further significance. Um, John Ratcliffe, just last week, a day or two after Hutchinson's testimony, was hired by an outfit called American Global Strategies. Uh, bills itself as a boutique consulting firm, apparently geared at collecting money from clients in the national security space. I'm sure they're giving their clients the same excellent intelligence that Ratcliffe was given the Trump administration in the run-up to the terrorist attack on January 6th. So it's just curious to, that they just drop him in there and drop him out. You know, I don't know what the purpose is. Were they trying to illustrate that not everyone in the Trump administration was on board with the scheme to defraud America? Um, 
But again, they could just be putting him out there as a, someone who's trying to claim that he was on Team Normal. Um, but, you know, there are some questions about his job performance, for sure. And subsequently, Ratcliffe has appeared on Fox News to deny any responsibility as DNI. I just do foreign stuff. Well, we had foreign intelligence. We had intelligence from an Israeli source, for example. And, you know, he's thrown blame on Mayor Bowser and Nancy Pelosi and other people. But, again, they've mentioned, Cheney mentioned, Thompson mentioned, that maybe some people they've talked to didn't testify truthfully. And I suspect that, you know, as much focus as there is on Ornato, there might be some interest in John Ratcliffe as well. So next they move to a discussion of an email that was received by Mr. Donahue, um, Bruce Donahue on January 4th from the National Security Division of the Department of Justice. And this email identified apparent planning by those coming to Washington on January 6th to, quote, occupy federal buildings and discussions of, quote, invading the Capitol building. So, again, that ties in a little bit with Ratcliffe's testimony, right? Or the testimony about Ratcliffe, rather. So the folks, you know, had been alerted from outside the White House that there were plans to go to D.C. and occupy buildings in the Capitol complex. So, Cheney also reported that the Secret Service was looking at, quote, similar information and watching the planned demonstrations. In fact, their intelligence division sent several emails to White House personnel, like Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato and Head of the President's Protective Detail Robert Engel, another person uh, who figures prominently, including listing uh, certain materials uh, like those on the screen. And again, that is the, the um, material from... So if you zoom in and pause it, um, that is stuff from the Million MAGA March and stuff from Fight for Trump, uh, which again, I think they are going to be looking at more closely in the next hearing. So this is a, a kind of a prelude and I expect next time we'll find out a lot more because everyone knows, like, you know, TPUSA, all these different groups had websites up telling people how to get to the Capitol, you know, with maps of the Capitol complex and the surrounding area uh, that could be used to plan the attack, right? Certainly to plan to get people there. And then on the day, of course, they had different people, as we will see, marshalling the attackers to different places around the Capitol complex where they wanted them to be. And again, what's significant is that they will show that the material that is in the next hearing, the one that I expect will be the best hearing, will show that the White House knew about all of this uh, in advance of the attack. And of course, you know, they knew about it because they were part of the planning of it, right? But they also had information from other people who apparently were not in on it, who did not want, you know, the Capitol to be attacked. But, of course, the easiest thing for them to do was to do absolutely nothing. And, of course, and yet another bombshell uh, bit of testimony that nonetheless comes to, well, comes as no big surprise to anyone, really. Um, 
Rudy Giuliani apparently is associated with the Proud Boys. There's there's a shocker, but we have confirmation again at this point from someone inside the West Wing regarding Rudy Giuliani talking about the Proud Boys in the run up to January sixth. I recall hearing the word Oath Keeper and hearing the word Proud Boys closer to the planning of the January sixth rally when Mr. Giuliani would be around. So both the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. And Cheney then goes on to cite a uh, memo from the Capitol Police, a bulletin, saying, quote, Unlike previous post-election protests, the targets of the pro-Trump supporters are not necessarily the counter-protesters, as they were previously, but rather Congress itself is the target on the 6th. So, rather alarming and something that, you know, uh, one would imagine... Uh, that, you know, people in, like, let's say, oh, I don't know, that the Senate Sergeant Arms might be able to testify to um, if you were still alive. And then Cheney, of course, goes on, and by the way, I don't want to imply anything about, uh, you know, possible death of various witnesses at 71 at home, stressful times, I'm sure, you know, in all seriousness, no reasons to suspect anything at this point. Cheney then goes on to point to the fact that, of course, it was the Proud Boys who, again, uh, had this monkey-see-monkey-do strategy, leading the attack, getting people like Ryan Samsel to attack the police, uh, and, you know, getting the normies riled up and getting them to attack as much as possible, but also, of course, attacking the police themselves. And Cheney then turns to um, information regarding Hutchinson's contact with Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor. And by the way, the, the firm uh, to which I, I made reference to with uh, Ratcliffe is actually founded by Mr. O'Brien. So I don't know if this is, you know, a wholly Trumpist firm. Uh, you go through the press releases, like, it you know, seems normal. They, they don't seem to be cray, but, you know, it, it's hard to tell. Uh, maybe this is a safe space for witnesses. I don't know. But... The testimony um, that Hutchinson said, and I don't want to play too many clips, uh, with regard to this call was, quote, I received a call from Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor. He had asked if we could, if he could speak with Mr. Meadows about potential violent words of violence that he was hearing that were potentially going to happen on the Hill on January 6th. I had asked him if he had connected with Tony Ornato because Tony Ornato had a conversation with him with Mark about that topic. Robert had said, I'll talk to Tony, and then I don't know if Robert ever connected with Mark about the issue. And of course, then Cheney has Hutchinson testify uh, to Tony Ornato's bona fides, uh, describing his, his duties with regard to, quote, security protocol for the campus and all presidential protectees, primarily the president and the first family, but anything that requires security for any individual that has presidential protection. So the chief of staff or the national security advisor, as well as the vice president's team too, Tony would for oversee all of that. And he was the conduit for security protocol between White House staff and the United States Secret Service. So, again, a very key official with regard to the security arrangements for January 6th. And, again... 
we've just heard evidence say, suggesting that, uh, you know, you've got the National Security Advisor, right? And again, you've, you've got, you know, Ratcliffe, who's a DNI, saying, well, I don't do domestic stuff. But then you've also got something from O'Brien, who's the National Security Advisor, who is warning people in the White House about the potential for violence on January 6th. Hutchinson then goes on to testify about the fact that reports came into the White House of people being arrested on January 5th for having weapons at the, the events that were sort of the prelude, prelude to January 6th. So, again, all these red flags, and basically Hutchinson is establishing that, no, nobody had any concerns. Um, there's testimony that she delivers that indicates that Ornato had some knowledge about what was happening, but apparently, you know, wasn't, well, she didn't say this, but, you know, why he didn't do more is kind of suspicious. And also, I don't want to actually go through all these. I mean, there are four meetings. You can kind of see which ones are which ones, uh, which meetings, that is, say, depositions that Hutchinson gives. There's one in February, there's one on March 7th. Then there's the last one, Date Uncertain, with Liz Cheney. And you, if you watch the video, you can tell which ones were from which deposition. There are different camera angles. Um, although, interestingly, I think at some point they may have instructed Hutchinson to actually wear the same outfit. Even though it's different days, they're using different camera angles. You can kind of tell which one is which one. And I believe it's only the last hearing that uh, she is being questioned by Cheney directly. But here's what she had to say with regard to Ornato and his foreknowledge of the attack on January 6th. Remember, Mr. Ornato had talked to him about intelligence reports. I remember Mr. Ornato coming in and saying that we had intel reports saying that there could potentially be violence on the, on the 6th. I just remember Mr. Ornato coming in and saying we had intel reports saying there could be potentially potentially be violence on the 6th. So again, a lot of this points to Mr. Ornato, and, you know, it, it seems like much of this hearing is a pressure campaign aimed at Tony Ornato. Unless I'm wrong. Unless they've already got great testimony from Mr. Ornato, and, you know, uh, he's going to come forward and say, I told Trump all of this, and we knew all of this, and uh, it was his call not to do anything. I don't know, but this is going to get followed up on one way or another. So where are we now? We've established that the Trump administration had foreknowledge of the attack. Of course, again, well, yeah, obviously they were in on it. Um, but foreknowledge of it from actual people in the security establishment who presumably didn't want the Capitol to be attacked. And they apparently didn't do anything. That's suspicious. The next bit of testimony goes to uh, the security threat at the Ellipse. So we know um, there have been there's been testimony from Hutchinson saying they found weapons on people on January 5th and that there are, there are evident reports of weapons among the Trump crowd on January 6th. And yet this is the stuff with the magnetometers, the, the so-called mags, right? So this made a bit more of a splash in the news. So I don't think I will go into it uh, in as great detail, simply because I'm trying to highlight the parts that I think that the press have, have missed a little bit. But nonetheless, 
police reports come in and they, they hear about the fact that there are weapons near the ellipse, there are AR-15s, and again, you know, we can go to the right-wing talking point that no one was armed. In point of fact, these are people who are identified as being armed by sedition hunters, and I, I can see actually um, some people identified them. I don't remember. I would acknowledge you all, uh, you know, but literally as the testimony was ongoing, um, this was up saying, oh yeah, we, we know who these people are. They're the ones in the trees, basically, right? So these are, well, these weren't the only individuals to climb into trees, but they were climbing into trees, um, you know, armed. So he's, there's, according to the police quote, there was a group of individuals, about five to eight, five to eight individuals, um, and there, there was a stock of an AR-15 that was visible, and there are people with Glocks visible, and this was at, um, there were AR-15s identified at 14th and Independence. So Cheney is going through the reports of weapons to establish the fact that there is a danger to uh, anyone going to the Ellipse. And of course, this is all highly irregular with regard to the Secret Service, right? If you've ever been to a rally or any place where the Secret Service has been present, You've gone through the security protocols. Uh, you know, you wouldn't... I think in, under normal circumstances, if they had had this many reports of this many armed people in a presidential event, it would be automatically canceled, right? And I don't think they did a good enough job highlighting that, but if you had this many reports of a mob that was armed to the teeth and there were people present, screw the magnetometers, they would cancel the event outright. And so with regard to the magnetometers, they are basically having to use Cassidy Hutchinson as a proxy for Tony Ornato at this point. Because she is reporting on behavior and incidents that really it would be better to get from Ornato himself. Because this is the key point where Ornato is having a conversation with Mark Meadows about the magnetometers and the armed individuals and the rally at the Ellipse. Um, Quote, there are weapons that we're going to have. It's possible he listed weapons off that I just don't recall. And I gave him a brief but concise explanation, but also a fairly thorough. And I remember distinctly Mark not looking up from his phone. I remember Tony finishing his explanation and it taking a few seconds for Mark to say his name. Because I almost said, Mark, did you hear him? And then Mark chimed in. And it, it was like, all right, anything else? still looking on his phone, and Tony looked at me, and I looked at Tony, and he said, Tony said, no, sir, do you have any questions? And he's like, what are you hearing? And I looked at Tony, and I was like, sir, he just told you what was happening down at the rallies. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I know. And then he looked up and said, have you talked to the president? And Tony said, yes, sir, he's aware. And he said, Mark Meadows, all right, good. And I know this is a little bit inside baseball, but judging from the camera angles and the fact that it's Lindsay Cheney speaking and everything else, so we can't see who's off screen. Um, it might be Tim Heafy. I'm not sure if I recognize the voice, but uh, it is a member of the investigative team, probably a former prosecutor, and Liz Cheney, and they are questioning Hutchinson. And I'm pretty sure that this is from the very last interview. So this is one of those things those bits of information that 
came either before, probably after Hutchinson had a new council, right? So this is why this is significant. It demonstrates that Mark Meadows showed, knew that there were weapons and that Ornato had told Trump that there were weapons and that the response, the unified response, uh, I don't know, you know, I mean, I don't know if he's texting Jenny Thomas. I don't know if he's playing Candy Crush. I don't know if he's looking at porn. Mark Meadows can't be torn away from his phone. He's not that interested in the possibility of a, a credible threat, uh, perhaps to the President of the United States, the Vice President, God only knows who else, can't be bothered with it. And the same response from Donald Trump. So, again, that is the, the sort of one of the new details that I believe only emerged, even though I believe Hutchinson was testifying truthfully, probably cooperating to the best of her ability, nonetheless, this final hearing, this final deposition with Cheney is one where she comes forward and delivers the news about Meadows and the fact that he doesn't seem to care that there are weapons in a crowd where the president is going to be speaking. So at the time, the days leading up to the 6th, there were lots of public reports about how things might go bad on the 6th, and even the potential for violence. If I'm hearing you correctly, what stands out to you is that Mr. Meadows did not share those concerns, or at least did not act on those concerns. Did not act on those concerns would be accurate. But other people raised them to him. Like in this exchange, you mentioned Mr. Sarnato pulled him aside. That's correct. And so again, Meadows knew, Trump knew, and they did nothing. Testimony then goes on to uh, some text messages between Hutchinson and Ornato, and they keep talking about the, uh, the fact that the text messages were exchanged while they're at the ellipse, but the crowd looks good, and all that uh, Trump seems to care about at that point is getting the shot. Quote Hutchinson, but the crowd looks good from this vantage point, vantage point, she might have been speaking. The crowd looks good from this vantage point, as long as we get the shot, he was fucking furious. Ornato, he doesn't get it that the people on the monument side don't want to come in. They can see from there and don't want to have to go through mags. And of course, why don't they want to go through the mags? Because many of them presumably are armed. Uh, they, they have a variety of weapons, you know, to include knives, guns, flagpoles with uh, pointy, you know, pointy sticks. I mean, uh, God only knows, right? So, you know, this is should be, ought to have been, a giant red flag. And so Cheney asks Hutchinson about what, who's mad here, who's the he that refers to, and of course she says, it's the president. Could you tell us, first of all, who it is in the text who was furious? He in that text that I was referring to was the president. And uh, why was he furious, Ms. Hutchinson? He was furious because he wanted the arena that we had on the ellipse to be maxed out of capacity for uh, all attendees. And so again, from what looks to be the same session where Hutchinson is speaking what I believe is the last uh, deposition with Cheney 
and one other member of the investigative team, Cheney delivers another bombshell where she's talking about the fact that Trump wanted the arena to be full and yet people weren't coming in because they had weapons and what his opinion was with regard to uh, what they ought to do about that. Another leading reason, likely the primary reason, is because he wanted it full and he was angry that we weren't letting people through the mags with weapons, what the Secret Service deemed as weapons and our, our weapons. But when we were in the offstage announced tent, I was part of a conversation. I was in the I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. All of which begs the question, of course, what did Trump think the weapons were there for? Right? All he cares about is that he's not going to get hurt. So that, again, uh, looks to be from what would seem to be the final deposition after Hutchinson has a new attorney, a non-Trumpist attorney, so that she can testify truthfully without her testimony being blocked by her attorney saying, no, no, you, you can't say that. So, again, that is a pretty big bombshell. Not president wanted to go to uh, the Capitol itself, and the president didn't care about the fact that there were people who were armed at the Ellipse, because as long as they weren't there to hurt him, it didn't matter. They could have guns, knives, bombs, sharpened flagpoles, brass knuckles, whatever. Didn't matter. So there, it's his armed mob of goons, and as long as that's the case, he is apparently fine with it. And so we see why Hutchinson is such a valuable witness. So she's getting his stuff they can't get from Meadows. She's getting his stuff they can't get from Ornato. And now she's getting stuff from Pat Cipollone, the president's chief White House lawyer. Um, she had had a conversation with Cipollone on January 3rd. Let's play that testimony real quick. Again, regarding what's going to happen if they go to the Capitol. Trump goes to the Capitol from the rally at the Ellipse. They're talking about what should be in the speech, whether or not, you know, they should fight, have the fight for Trump stuff. Cipollone is opposed to that. Um, but apparently, according to Hutchinson, it's Trump and Meadows who are really pushing this kind of thing. And this, I think, was yet another one of the bombshell uh, sound bites from the hearing that I think got a little bit overshadowed by the incident inside the beast. It wasn't the beast. It was it was a suburban, but the incident inside the car, where again, you know, this is the one thing that we're hearing about. I think this is probably more important. On January third, Mr. Cipollone had approached me, knowing that Mark had raised the prospect of going up to the Capitol on January six. Mr. Cipollone and I had a brief private conversation where he said to me, we need to make sure that this doesn't happen. This would be a legally a, a terrible idea for us. We're, we have serious legal concerns if we go up to the Capitol that day. And he then urged me to continue relaying that to Mr. Meadows because it's my understanding that Mr. Cipollone 
Maloney thought that Mr. Meadows was indeed pushing this along with the president. And we understand, Ms. Hutchinson, that you also spoke to Mr. Cipollone on the morning of the 6th as you were about to go to the rally on the ellipse. And Mr. Cipollone said something to you like, make sure the movement to the Capitol does not happen. Is that correct? That's correct. I saw Mr. Cipollone right before I walked out onto West Exec that morning. And Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. So that's kind of huge, right? You've got the White House counsel saying, we get charged with every crime imaginable. So we don't know if Cipollone had some other uh, chats with the Secret Service or Mr. Ornato trying to make sure that this doesn't actually happen. But again, that's pretty significant because they knew ahead of time, they're like, whoa, this is highly problematic. This is the White House's chief attorney telling Cassidy Hutchinson uh, that, you know, they could get charged with every crime imaginable. And again, this also goes to Hutchinson. Once again, you know, they tried to discredit her, but this is someone who has private conversations with Pat Cipollone, right? So this is just some flunky, some low-level person. Despite her youth, she's in a position that is literally central, if you look at the map, uh, of the West Wing. And I, again, in this testimony, um, she's got, like, her notes and her material, but she appears to be just going off of memory. Uh, and unlike some of the other uh, witnesses who appear to be spending a lot of time reading, uh, Hutchinson is working off of memory, and her memory of the events appears to be excellent. Um, segue right into the, the very next thing that Cheney says to Hutchinson, because, again, it's important. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the six, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. So that's significant. So even before the six, and uh, most people, I, I didn't even focus on this, right? The, the alleged fraud, um, the fraud, defrauding the U.S. government is a possible count. Pat Cipollone is worried about this, you know, right up to the six. So conspiracy to defraud the United States government was known to be a possible count. Whether or not he told Trump, I don't know. Um, but it is fascinating that he's saying that. And of course, Hutchinson is saying obstruction of justice. Again, that's the 1512 count. Uh, that is that he's, you know, obstruction of an official proceeding. So it's remarkable that Pat Cipollone is talking about the very same charges. Many people have already been charged with the 1512 count of obstruction of an official proceeding. And it looks like Trump, Eastman, and many others are vulnerable, the fake electors, for example, uh, to charges related to conspiracy to defraud the United States government. So that is significant and is part of the direction that it looks like Congress is moving, that the January 6th committee is moving in, focusing on these specific charges, because again, they're trying to invoke plausible deniability. Hey, it just so happens that two of the charges 
that are already in the air, right? 1512 already been charged many times, already out there were charges that Pat Civiloni knew about, which is one of the things that, you know, again, it would be great to have his testimony. I'd like to go on with, of course, the talking about the hearing, but of course, just a side note, a lot of the concerns about Cipollone's testimony is that uh, not only does he actually have executive privilege, something that Bannon didn't as a non-White House employee, but he's in a bit of a special position as White House counsel, and so there are concerns, well, gee, you know, can Congress make the president's lawyer talk about things related to attorney-client privilege, is this a precedent that we want to set? Um, there's a crime-fraud exemption, exception, right? So, we don't know. My hope is that Cipollone will come and talk to this. But, I mean, if, you know, if this winds up being an actual court case, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different than a, a subpoena from the committee. So, we'll see. I mean, it's already been ruled by Judge Carter in California, that there's probable cause to believe that a, a crime has been committed. So hopefully that would stand up in a new case. So we, we don't know. But I would be very anxious to see Pat Cipollone testify to all of this. Because he seems to be, on the one hand, like, you know, both he and Ornato appear to be on Team Normal. So let them testify. Now, of course, this whole... This entire proceeding is really about Hutchinson and her credibility as a witness. I find her eminently credible, but it has come to light. There's been some reporting saying that there are other people who are willing to confirm Hutchinson's account on various details. And one of those people has been teased a little bit in this hearing. Not much content on the press, which is why I would like to highlight his testimony. And that is the testimony of Max Miller who was a Trump aide at the time. And here's what he had to say with regard to January 6th. So this is testimony first from uh, Max Miller and then from Nick Luna regarding Trump's desire to go to the Capitol on January 6th. Did the president tell you this, that he wanted to speak at the Capitol? Correct, yes. During the meeting in the dining room, did the, the idea of the president um, proceeding or walking to the Capitol on the 6th after his speech come up? Walking to the Capitol? No. Driving to the Capitol? It came up. Okay, how did it come up and what was discussed? You brought it up. You said, I want to go down to the Capitol. What about him marching to the Capitol on the 6th? Um, yes. Tell us about that. So... Kind of a general thing. I mean, to get into the specifics of it, I I was aware of the desire of the president to potentially uh, march to the or or accompany the uh, rally attendees to the Capitol. When did you first hear about this idea of the president accompanying rally attendees to the Capitol on the sixth? This was at the sixth. This was during the. After he finishes remarks. When the president said that he would be going to the Capitol during his speech on the ellipse, the Secret Service scrambled to find a way for him to go. Ultimately, of course, Trump doesn't get what he wants. And again, 
it shows that uh, you've got other people who are going to back Hutchinson up on some of this stuff. They may not be as fully cooperative as she is, but nonetheless, the testimony is already there. So it's a well-established fact now, not just from Hutchinson, but from others, that Trump absolutely wanted to go to the Capitol, the thing that he said in front of everybody, in front of the entire world, in front of the whole crowd of the Ellipse, and on national TV, he wanted to go to the Capitol. So that question at least has been definitively answered. And I, for one, was always unsure, right? I mean, I, he would have had to have realized. But again, this is Donald Trump. He doesn't take no for an answer, right? You know, just grab him by the pussy. They'll let you do anything. You know, that's Donald Trump. He doesn't take no for an answer. He loses an election. He doesn't take no for an answer. He wants to drive to the Capitol. He doesn't take no for an answer. So perhaps not as surprising, uh, you know, as, yeah, I, I shouldn't be surprised. Another thing that I think is rather extraordinary that perhaps is, you know, there are just so many things um, that you could overlook. They actually have the National Security Council chat log for January 6th. So, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, and the, the section that's excerpted, uh, that Cheney doesn't actually read it, she reads highlighted sections. I'm going to read the whole thing in its entirety. Uh, just so you can get a feel for what was happening and you can reconstruct your own personal timeline. 12.29 p.m. Mogul, that's the code word for Trump, Mogul's going to the Capitol, ellipsis, they're clearing a route now. 12.30 p.m. They're finding the best route now. 12.32 p.m. Mill aide has confirmed that he wants to walk. 12.32 p.m. They're begging him to reconsider. 12.46 p.m. Current route will be 15th to F, F to 6, 6 uh, to Penn, Penn to the Capitol. 1247. So this is happening. 1257. Capitol Police are reporting multiple breaches in their anti-scaling fence. So interesting. It looks, in, there is some sense in which, because of the, the violence was already ongoing, if the violence perhaps hadn't been already ongoing, maybe Trump could have made it to the Capitol, Right? Maybe that was the, the, the final straw, that was the, the final decider, being like, no, you know what, um, we're not permitting this. One o'clock. Capitol is now calling for all available to respond. One o'clock. They have taken over the stage over there. 106. They're about to use non-lethal for the Capitol. 114. Mogul headed to motorcade. 117. Looks like he is coming home for now. 120. Mogul in Oval. So that's the timeline from roughly 1230 to 120, where the decision point is made. And uh, again, if you you know you back it up, it's like they've already you know, the, the whole Samsel thing has already happened. They're already storming the Capitol. They're already there on the inauguration stage. And um, you know, if the timeline had perhaps been a little bit different, Trump might have been able to make it there, which is kind of scary. But again, you know, um, he wasn't ultimately able to get them to shut down the magnetometers, nor was he uh, able to persuade them that he should be allowed to go to the Capitol while a mob is actually assaulting Congress.
Now, we already knew that Kevin McCarthy didn't like the fact that the Capitol was getting stormed. Um, and he, he winds up actually uh, texting um, Cassidy Hutchinson, or rather calling her, and she then sends a text to Tony Ornato. Quote, McCarthy just called me too, and do you guys think you're coming to my office? So, basically, Kevin McCarthy is calling everybody he can, including Cassidy Hutchinson, saying, hey, wh why are they going to the Capitol? You just told a, you, you've been telling us that he's not going to come to the Capitol. And Hutchinson testifies, quote, so when Mr. McCarthy called me at this, with this information, I answered the call, and he sounded rushed, but also frustrated and angry at me. I was confused because I didn't know what the president had just said, i.e. that he was going to go to the Capitol. He then explained the president just said he's marching to the Capitol. You told me this whole week you weren't coming up here. Again, that's McCarthy. Why would you lie to me, McCarthy? Hutchinson says, quote, I said I'm not lying. I wasn't lying to you, sir. I, we're not going to the Capitol. And he said, well, he just said it on stage, Cassidy. Figure it out. Don't come up here. So, again, that would be great, more great testimony. So not only is she getting at testimony from Meadows and Ornato and McCarthy, uh, but here she's getting at uh, testimony from uh, McCarthy, which, again, would be great testimony for the committee to have, but you can see the heavy lifting that Cassidy Hutchinson is doing here, effectively testifying for all these high-ranking men who are too scared or whatever, complicit to actually testify truthfully as to what actually happened on January 6th. So it answers a lot of questions. We still don't really know the full story of how it was that um, the decision was made by someone that there is no way Trump was going to the Capitol. Uh, according to Hutchinson, uh, there were discussions, quote, a few different ideas discussed with between Mark and Scott Perry, Mark and Rudy Giuliani. I don't know which conversations were elevated to the president. I don't know what he personally wanted to do when he went to the Capitol that day. You know, I, I know there were discussions about him giving another speech outside the Capitol before going in. I know that there was conversation about him going into the House chamber at one point. So this is actually Trump storming the Capitol. So somehow, you know, whether it was Mr. Ornato, uh, whether it was Pat Cipollone, somehow that got squashed. And thank heavens it did. You know, again, it could have just been timing. Um, there were irregularities with, you know, prop coordination problems, uh, apparently, right? Maybe that the Proud Boys were supposed to go later. Um, I don't think so. I mean, it, it worked out well for the violence. I think they were supposed to, they, Trump may have actually believed that he could just go into the Capitol even when there's an angry mob assaulting police. He may have legitimately believed that that's the case, that he can go in and say, there's an insurrection, it's terrible, it's horrible, people are saying it's bad, I'm saying it's bad, I declare Insurrection Act, nationalize all the militias, who knows. Um, I'm going in and doing whatever it was 
he intended to do. And that's something that I think that, you know, the committee is anxiously trying to figure out ways to, uh, you know, get other witnesses to testify to that. Because uh, I think Hutchinson is sincere when she says she doesn't know. Now I'm getting to part of the story, which I think most people are going to be most familiar with because it has been reported most heavily in the media. And that, of course, is the so-called Beast incident, which technically not the Beast. Uh, Ornato apparently recounting this to Hutchinson said it was Beast, um, but it, the Beast is technically the limo version. This is a suburban, it is a up-armored uh, suburban that was supposedly going to carry Trump either to the Capitol or ultimately, of course, uh, to the White House. And this is a conversation that uh, occurs between Ornato and Hutchinson. Um, quote, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the fucking president. Take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, Sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up toward the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, Sir, you need to take your hand off of the steering wheel. Then again, this is uh, Mr. Engel again. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge toward Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Ornato recounted this story to me, he had motioned toward his clavicles, end quote. So this is the one, of course, where the various Trumpists uh, have tried to, you know, make questions about as well. You can't physically reach that far. And then there was a uh, bit of a red herring saying, well, we've got the actual Secret Service members who were there and they're going to testify. Um, and then all that just kind of vanished. It all kind of evaporated. Um, so... As I take it now, this is pretty much the definitive account uh, because, oh, right, there's video. And it's very blurry. It is, uh, half of it is through, like, spoke glass and there's a Secret Service agent and standing from an open door for, for some time. Uh, but you can basically see the outline of Trump lunging toward his driver. So... Um, that apparently is a thing that, that has happened. So that was kind of the bombshell, and that was the, the thing that, you know, all the, the, the stuff is swirling around. But, you know, I mean, I think it's probably whatever actually happened there. Ultimately, the, the thing is that Trump intended to go to the Capitol, perhaps even enter the House chamber where the electoral tally was, was occurring, perhaps declaring the Insurrection Act. Again, we don't know. Invoking the Insurrection Act, we don't know. Uh, but also, again, other things like the fact that Pasolini says, this can't happen or we're going to get charged with every crime imaginable. Those are, you know, this is kind of a detail, um, but I think it happened, right? And I think that this would be a useful thing for Mr. Ornato to testify to. Hutchinson also testified to the fact that she had personal knowledge of the President of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, throwing his plate or snatching a um, tablecloth uh, from a chair, from, sorry, from a table, and spewing the contents all over the room, um, which, you know, again, I think she this evidence was just used to go to Mr. Trump's temperament. Uh, there was a specific incident regarding 
a uh, press conference with Attorney General Barr where he had decided, you know, he tossed his plate. So, I mean, not legally significant, I don't think, but, um, you know, again, just goes to Donald Trump's temper and kind of lays the groundwork for the fact that, you know, he would get angry and do just uh, crazy, absurd things that you wouldn't expect a, a grown man to do. Um, but, of course, if you're a billionaire and you never have to clean up your own messes, why not? Why not throw a plate full of ketchup and have, uh, you know, uh, your chief of staff's senior aide and your valet clean it up for you? Yet another thing that I think has been somewhat missed uh, from the testimony, you know, again, everything's focused on the beast incident, um, is the fact that we've now got uh, Stone and Flynn both name-checked. Quote, Cheney, and Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that Mr. Meadows called Mr. Stone on the 5th? Hutchinson, I'm under the impression that Mr. Meadows did complete both a call to Mr. Stone and General Flynn on the evening of the 5th. Cheney, and do you know what they talked about that evening, Mrs. Hutchinson? Ms. Hutchinson? Hutchinson, I'm not sure. Cheney, is it your understanding that Mr. Giuliani, Mr. Eastman, and others has set up what has been called, quote, a war room at the Willard Hotel on the night of the 5th? Hutchinson, I was aware of that on the night of the 5th. So Hutchinson knew about the war room on the 5th. Cheney asks if uh, Meadows ever actually intended to go to the war room, and Hutchinson says this, quote, Mr. Meadows had a conversation with me where he wanted me to work with Secret Service on a movement from the White House to the Willard Hotel so he could attend the meeting or meetings with Mr. Giuliani and his associates in the war room. Cheney, and what was your view as to whether or not Mr. Meadows should go to the Willard that night? Hutchinson, I had made it clear to Mr. Meadows that I didn't believe it was a smart idea for him to go to the Willard Hotel that night. I wasn't sure everything that was going on at the Willard Hotel, although I knew enough about what Mr. Giuliani and his associates were pushing during this period. I didn't think it was something appropriate for the White House Chief of Staff to attend or to consider involvement in, and made that clear to Mr. Meadows. Throughout the afternoon, he mentioned a few more times going up to the Willard Hotel that evening, and then eventually dropped the subject the night of the 5th and said that he would dial in instead. Liz Cheney reiterated the fact that both Stone and Flynn have appeared before the committee and that they have taken the 5th, invoked their 5th Amendment rights, and then proceeded to play this lovely clip of General Michael Flynn, which, again... Ordinarily, this would kind of be a bombshell, but there's just so many things that, you know, are happening now. There's like, nothing is surprising anymore. Uh, General Flynn, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? Yes. Flynn says, can we have a minute? Minute and 36 second gap. Yes, General Flynn, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? Sir, can I get clarification? 
So there you have it, right? Former top general uh, national security advisor invoking the Fifth Amendment when asked whether or not uh, he supports the peaceful transfer of power in the United States of America. This is a bedrock principle that as a general officer uh, he knows about um, and, you know, certainly should not be problematic for him to support. So... We're seeing a lot of things, right? So, I mean, Flynn is just kind of done. I mean, if you're testifying to that and you're you're taking the fifth, which supposedly doesn't incriminate you, and yet you're taking the fifth on whether or not you believe in the peaceful transfer of power, that is pretty damning, right? And as well as the testimony uh, that, you know, Meadows, again, um, you know, so much of what, Hutchinson said directly regarding his conduct has been damning in ways that we had not seen heretofore. So he's in serious trouble. And of course, subsequent to all this, Pat Cipollone finally winds up winning the subpoena award from the January 6th committee. They are going to deal with whatever legal issues, whatever legal hurdles that they have to deal with to get the former White House counsel to try to testify, hopefully voluntarily, but if not, uh, you know, it, the litigation will take time, but apparently it's something that they've decided is now worthwhile. And of course, we've already seen Hutchinson testify as to how well situated she is to see things that were actually happening in the West Wing, and she was privy to a conversation uh, with between Mark Meadows and Pat Cipollone that Again, in any ordinary administration, like, everybody would just resign on the spot. No more than a minute, minute and a half later, I see Pasquale barreling down the hallway towards our office. And Ross Schreiter looked at me and said, is Mark in his office? I said, yes. He just looked at me and started shaking his head. And whatever, opened Mark's office door, stood there with the door propped open, and said something to me. Mark's still sitting on his phone. I remember like, glancing at him, he's still sitting on his phone. And I remember Pat saying to him something to the effect of, the riders have got to the Capitol, Mark. We need to go down and see the president now. And Mark looked up at him and said, he doesn't want to do anything, Pat. And Pat said something to the effect of, and very clearly had said this to Mark. Something to the effect of, Mark, something needs to be done or people are going to die and the blood's going to be on your effing hands. This is getting out of control. I'm going down there. And at that point, Mark stood up from his couch, both of his phones in his hand, and his glasses on still. He walked out with Pat. He 
my desk. It's a bloody of gym clothes. And they walked out, went down to the dining room. So that's significant, right? They then go both confront Trump. Of course, Jim, at the very end, um, when Meadows hands the phone, of course, that's a reference to Jim Jordan. Cassidy Hutchinson's job at that point uh, is to be watching for a call from Jim Jordan uh, to Mark Meadows on, on both of his phones while Meadows is trying to do something with about the crisis at the Capitol. Although, again, really it's Cipollone who's doing it, right? Uh, apparently, Meadows really just doesn't want to be there. He wants to be texting with Jenny Thomas uh, or playing Candy Crush or whatever it is that he's doing on his phone during this entire episode. And, of course, ordinarily that would, you know, again, kind of be a big deal. Eventually, of course, Jim Jordan does call, and this puts Hutchinson right in the doorway of the dining room, and uh, she is able to hand the phone off to Meadows, and she is then able to hear the discussion in the dining room regarding the chance to hang Mike Pence that the uh, attacking mob is engaging in at that very moment in the Capitol. wasn't until Mark hung up the phone, handed it back to me. I went back to my desk. A couple minutes later, him and Pat came back, possibly Eric Hirschman too. I'm pretty sure Eric Hirschman was there. But I'm, I'm confident it was Pat that was there. Um, I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. To which Pat said something. This is effing crazy. We need to be doing something more. Briefly stepped into Mark's office. And when Mark had said something, when Mark had said, said something to the effect of, he doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Knowing what I heard briefly in the dining room, coupled with Pat discussing the hang Mike Pence chance in the lobby of our office, and then Mark's response, I understood there to be the rioters in the Capitol that were They also offer a fair amount of testimony regarding um, what happened when, uh, with the 224 tweet uh, where Trump is basically egging the mob on, right? Now, this is the tweet, of course, where there's violence and the violence actually escalates after the, the tweet goes out. Of course, most of you are going to be familiar with this anyway. I'll read it anyway. Tweet from Donald Trump, quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution, giving states a chance to certify a corrected set of facts, not the fraudulent or inaccurate ones which they were, they were asked to previously certify. USA demands the truth. And so Hutchinson is, you know, uh, talking about how she didn't approve of the idea that Mike, Mike Pence should be hung. Um, and they're kind of, you know, just sort of toying with some of the reaction. I think part of what's useful here 
is that I don't know that you're going to get a lot of people other than Donald Trump himself who are going to say that uh, egging the, the crowd on to attack the vice president of the United States is really a great idea. And uh, one of the people that they, the committee winds up talking to in this regard is uh, Matthew Pottinger, who had been, he was a, a Marine intelligence officer who was uh, serving as a deputy national security advisor, and who had been in and out of the Oval Office. And here's what he had to say about the 224 tweet that, again, escalated the violence at the Capitol. staff brought me a printout uh, of a uh, tweet uh, by the president. And the tweet uh, said something to the effect that uh, Mike Pence, the vice president, didn't have the courage um, to, uh, to, to do what he what should have been done. Uh, I, uh, I read that tweet uh, and uh, made the decision at that moment to resign. Uh, that's where I knew that I was leaving that day uh, once I read that tweet. They then go through multiple uh, people who were apparently telling Trump that he needed to tell the crowd to go home. Uh, Eric Hirschman, for example, Ivanka Trump, and according to Liz Cheney, the committee has heard, had evidence from, quote, many others who said the same thing. And again, goes to the whole issue of plausible deniability, right? So Trump is there in the dining room, and, you know, he doesn't do anything, not only did he not do anything to, to stop them from being violent, but after they became violent, he did nothing to deter them from this. Also entered into evidence is a piece of note paper that is written in Cassidy Hutchinson's own handwriting uh, at Mark Meadows' direction um, that included, that basically reads, quote, anyone who entered the Capitol uh, without pro proper authority should leave immediately. Uh, before without, the word illegal is written and crossed out. But according to Hutchinson's testimony and, of course, just facts, uh, nothing along those lines was ever actually issued by Trump, right? Uh, there is that, you know, the statement was like, hey, you're, you're good people, I love you, please go home, go in peace now. Um, but, again, not the statement that many, apparently, within the West Wing were trying to get Trump to issue. There's also testimony, well, not testimony, but a recording of um, McCarthy saying, you know, that he thought it was un-American, uh, and there's a testimony from uh, Representative Mike Gallagher saying, quote, Mr. President, you have to stop this. You're the only person who can call call this off. Call it off. The election is over. Call it off. And, uh, again, what's kind of tantalizing here is that they kind of tease what they're gonna what is going to happen later, but they don't actually go out and say it. So they it is known to them what actually happened with regard to this message that was put out. They have testimony regarding the video message that was put out at 417. According to Liz Cheney, quote, as we will show in even greater detail in future hearings, Donald Trump was reluctant to put this message out 
and still could not bring himself to condemn the attack. The final bit of testimony concerns possible attempts to invoke the 25th Amendment and the speech that Trump winds up giving a statement on January 7th. And uh, according to Hutchinson, um, there was a group of people that convinced him, um, and she cites Mark Meadows, Ivanka, Jared Kushner, Eric Hirschman, Pat Cipollone, and Pat Philbin, and claims that those are all the people that she's aware of, although possibly she then goes on to say Kaylee McEnany as well. Quote, from what I stood understood at the time, and from the reports that were coming in, there was a large concern of the 25th Amendment potentially being invoked, and there were concerns about what would happen in the Senate if it was. If the 25th was invoked, so the primary reason that I had heard, other than, you know, we did not do enough on the 6th, we need to get a stronger message out there and condemn, condemn this is, otherwise this will be your legacy. And so, again, at the same time, Trump is trying, you know, to get, to potentially even offer pardons to the January 6th attackers. This is still something that he's talking about on the 7th. And according to Hutchinson's testimony, not just Trump, but also Mark Meadows. Mark Meadows also is encouraging pardons. So... That largely is the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson regarding what happened in the run-up to January 6th and in the White House on January 6th. And of course, very last saying reiterates, Giuliani wanted a pardon. Mark Meadows wanted a pardon. So, again, cognizance of guilt on their part because they wanted a pardon. Ultimately, they didn't get it. And, you know, all in all, I think it was really helpful testimony to the committee. Some of the biggest bombshells. Again, I think there's a danger that they're going to focus a lot on this lurching incident. Um, but, you know, a lot of the other stuff. Trump knew it was illegal. He knew that there were going to be weapons. He wanted to go to the Capitol when he they refused to take him to the Capitol because violence had already started. And again, interesting timeline thing there. Maybe if the violence hadn't already started, he could have gone. I'm, I'm not sure about that, but interesting question there. Uh, he wants to go to the Capitol. He, at a minimum, throws a giant hissy fit, toddler temper tantrum. At maximally, he's reaching out and grabbing Mr. Engel by the collarbones. He's floating pardons for the January 6th defendants. He's saying, well, maybe our people have it right with regard to hanging Mike Pence. And all of this, Mark Meadows is there with him by his side and in full support of the most radical positions. So you've got Team Normal and then you've got Team Crazy. And Mark Meadows is fully on board with just the, the most basically absurd, you know, willing to let Trump do whatever Trump wants to do. And so just utterly, utterly spineless. Uh, and, you know, I mean, he knows what, what's happening is wrong um, and yet does nothing at all to stop it. 
And of course, as I mentioned before, at the very end, they mentioned the bombshell, right? The reason why this testimony had to occur was because the witness had been threatened. It came out subsequently that both of the messages that were featured in that hearing were actually directed at Cassidy Hutchinson, including one from a close associate of Mark Meadows. So there's ongoing criming going on, not just January 6th, but also the cover-up. It's an old adage, but, you know, um, they tend to get people on the cover-up. And witness tampering is something that they take very seriously. So we'll see. You know, we'll see if they make a referral to the Department of Justice. We'll see if a referral to the Department of Justice is even necessary. I know there are many people who uh, hold, you know, have long since given up hope that, uh, you know, there will be actual arrests made in any of these cases. I think after Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, uh, that becomes much more clear, even to people who have, to date, been relatively skeptical. We have people now talking about the, the necessity of protecting the rule of law by arresting Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, and all the other people involved in the January 6th insurrection. All right. So, as always, uh, thank you so much for your listenership. If you have any comments, please find me on Twitter at CapInsurrup. Um, I'm not sure I'll be putting up uh, another episode between now and um, the next hearing. I may uh, do a quick one at some point in the next eight days. But this next hearing is the one that I've been anticipating since at least January. So uh, be sure to watch that live if you can. They haven't announced a time. Um, my guess is that this will be in prime time because they said that the last one in the series would be in prime time. And this is going to be the one about assembling the mob. And my belief is this is going to be in prime time on the 12th. Uh, it hasn't been officially announced yet, but we should know more about that officially in the next couple of days. Thank you so much. Please rate and have a happy 4th of July, Independence Day.